Don't forget the cholo. They delivered it to us. Cholo? You look like somebody spit in your socks. No one said anything about the cholo. All right, all right. What does it mean? What does it mean? It means they don't care. They're not afraid to die. Any of them. They want to rip us apart, no matter what it costs. It means to the death. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back here to episode three of Uncanny Cinema. Uh, as we know from the previous episodes, we focus on the obscure, the bizarre, the unloved, the overlooked, and the underappreciated in film. And today we will be looking at the 1976 film uh, Assault on Precinct 13, very early film for John Carpenter, famous cult, horror, sci-fi director, and all-around beloved, uh, in certain circles, director John Carpenter. Uh, today, uh, just myself and a friend of mine, MJ. Hi, Linton. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> great, great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, yeah. So, Saltam Precinct 13, 1976, as I said, this is John Carpenter's second film. He had done some TV stuff prior to this, I believe. He did some TV stuff after that, and then shortly thereafter, he launched into kind of the main aspects of his career and was making movies regularly. Mm -hmm. So this came just a couple years after Dark Star, which is a kind of science fiction comedy that uh, he worked on with a couple people. But this is his baby. You know, he wrote, directed, edited, and scored this, which uh, is pretty common in his career that he had his hand in a lot of things. But I believe this is the first time that he had all of those uh, aspects that he was taking on. What do we think of this? Well, and uh, I'd like to add, now... I know he did it all for a hundred G's, right? A hundred thousand dollars I saw. And yeah, I think so. Yeah, right. So they wanted a exploitation film, somebody, the powers that be, and asked him to do this. But my question is, what does that convert to? Was that a significant financial investment in this young director at that time? A hundred thousand? I from everything I was reading, I mean there's like inflation calculators we could do, but Sure. Everything I was reading, like this, this was still like a low budget affair because Dark Star was definitely low budget. After mm -hmm. this one in '78, he did Halloween, which was sure. still pretty low budget. Um, I mean, ha Halloween's budget at the time might be comparable to some modern horror movies, but I wouldn't be surprised if Halloween's budget was like maybe a tad above what like the Evil Dead guys were working with, where. Wow. You know, I, I I know it was it was pretty low. I mean, they did have they did have Donald Pleasance, and he was an established actor, so that he would have cost them some money. But pretty mm -hmm. much nothing else in Halloween would have cost them anything. I mean, we could I could look up the figures, uh, but yeah, to my knowledge, it was a you know this is a this is a small movie by a, an emerging director. So that's that's where we're at. So I mean, first off, with that. And you could say the same about Dark Star and certainly Halloween. Is the the interesting thing is how these three films, you know, made for very little money. And we could talk about the specific artistic tenets in in uh, Assault on 
Precinct 13. But just more generally, what's interesting to me is that he made these films. Someone allowed him to do it. He did it for very little money. Like you said, he had his hands in everything. I thought the music was excellent. And uh, these have all increased in visibility and are well considered, you know, now 40 years down the line, 40, 50, how many, what is it? Working on 50, they've all kind of become staples of their genres. Yeah, um, that's, um, yeah, you, you had said, as we started this, you hadn't seen much Carpenter. I'm just curious which ones, because uh, I think, I think talking about his career makes sense. We could do that a bit before sure. we dig into the film in general, but uh, which ones have you come across, do you know, offhand or? I could I could rattle titles, right? No, I've got it. I've got it here too. So I've seen uh, Precinct Thirteen. I've seen Halloween. I'm aware. I haven't seen Dark Star, but it's up on my Criterion channel, or it just was recently in kind of a sci-fi um, appreciation thing they did. So yeah. that's how I was aware of that. The Fog, The Thing. I think I saw Escape from New York. Big Trouble in Little China is one of the first movies I ever saw in the theater. <laughs> I was six. I don't know why they brought me that thing. I think my dad and my uncle brought me. When I was six years old, I saw that. Uh, and I'd like to talk about his relationship to Kurt Russell, too, because it seems like... And then his later work... Now, They Live, I saw a very interesting... Um, they Live, I saw, but then I saw a documentary about They Live, uh, or in which they, they Live was featured. What the heck was that called? It's the European intellectual who did that, The Pervert's Guide to Cinema or something. Okay. D- uh, anyway, and I haven't seen much of his late work after that. Yeah. The vampires, Ghosts of Mars. I'm not yeah. as clear on that stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've, I've seen it all... Um... But yeah, most of his later stuff, unfortunately, I mean, there's a significant drop off at a certain point. There are some gems. Um, I would mm. definitely champion certain ones. But yeah, for the most part, he dropped off. It's unfortunate. Although he has uh, he has been involved in the most recent like Halloween movie they did, and they're doing kind of like a new trilogy with it. He did mm. the music on it, and it's phenomenal. Yes, uh, it is. He's been doing he's been doing music uh he's been releasing albums with his son and the son of one of the kinks founders uh i think dave davies son because he kind of like he was sort of like the godfather of the kinks son somehow there's some kind of connection because they knew each other but but yeah that he's been doing albums lately so uh while his movie output hasn't been great in the last 20 or so years uh his music stuff has been as good as ever it's it's fantastic but uh, but so it sounds like you have seen a good number of the Carpenter things and you, you've seen a good number of the really important ones. Sure. And you said like you, the fog and the thing were. Yes. And, yeah, now, yeah. Let me ask you something. What accounts for that drop off? Because you have a man here that for his first 10 years and you said, and now I haven't seen the later work. I certainly wouldn't want to disparage it because I love everything I've seen from the guy. But what accounts for the kind of if you want to call it a drop off you know yeah what accounts for that in his later work in your opinion was it financial was it personal what was it i don't know that it's personal i've never heard that he had any kind of major crises or anything that's like publicly known um he seems Mm -hmm. like a pretty chill guy even now like he kind of i i know he doesn't love the hollywood system 
although what he makes is very much like kind of pulpy Hollywood stuff. Like he's not, he doesn't make highbrow dramas or, you know, tiny indie kind of things. Like he loves like horror and science fiction and comic books. Like he's a comic book fan. He plays video games and he's like 70 years old and stuff. So he's, he's very much a Hollywood guy in terms of his sensibilities for like what mm -hmm. he enjoys but I think he's had some bad experiences in Hollywood. So that's affected things. It's probably made him less inclined to, because his last movie I think was like 2011. And then he did a couple TV movies that were part uh, like episodes of Masters of Horror. And those actually are some of the best things he's done in a long time. They, they, were, they were pretty solid. One in particular works really well. But yeah, his last, his last movie I remember being just really bad like the script was really bad it was confusing but this does kind of relate back to you you mm -hmm. asked me why what what accounts for the drop-off and we were just kind of talking about his place in cinema and you had earlier mentioned that he has these movies and they, they get way better regarded later and that's something right. that if you look at his career you see that again and again i mean halloween was well regarded at the time and made money but i think it was sort of like critics saw it as well this is like a good horror popcorn movie and some critics thought it was trash but now it's essentially seen as a classic horror film through and through like just absolutely ab absolute classic uh you know as much as it, there can be the thing is another great example uh yeah. when the when the thing with the thing i think is just an utter masterpiece like the thing mm -hmm. in Halloween, Halloween is phenomenal, but the thing he had more money and he had better effects and you have Kurt Russell at the center of it and an, and an amazing cast. So the thing I would probably lean toward being his best movie, but that's a movie where it came out and it's fantastic, um, but it doesn't do well. It would be perfectly fitting for this podcast if it hadn't been so well received in years hence like now everyone knows the thing and if you're interested right. in horror at all you've seen the thing right it's so famous now but at the time it just kind of like died a quick death at the theater it wasn't Did a it? Success. yeah it, it wasn't a success i'd have to dig into it to know if it went up against challenging stuff or not like if it if box office but it it was not a successful film but in the wow. years since it has become just like Halloween, uh, a mm -hmm. complete classic. And I remember reading that the thing's failure kind of altered his career because he had done Dark Star, which was very small. He mm -hmm. did um, Assault on Precinct 13, which is still like a, a pretty small movie. He did Halloween, which was small, but you know he was growing and then it became a big hit. He did The Fog. He did Escape from New York. And those were, I think, decent hits. And then The Thing was like kind of a major studio, I believe it was Universal, backing him. Mm. And kind of, this was going to be his breakout. He's going to be a big deal now. So he was going to graduate from being a director who's making some smaller genre movies that some are doing well and some aren't. And he was going to be like, you know, getting assigned big properties type deal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, I think, was sort of the trajectory and the plan. I think that's where he thought things would be going. And then it just didn't do well. And so then he was still able to make movies. But I think because that was like sort of the make or break one, 
that affected his career. He still made good stuff past that. Um, so to answer your question, your second question, what happened at the end, I would say his career is pretty solid. It's at least fun through the 80s. They live as, I think, like 88 and is still really fun. His last really good movie, I would say, is In the Mouth of Madness, which uh, I would encourage you to seek out. Um, it has Sam Neill in a great role, and it's basically a, an H.P. Lovecraft riff uh, merged with Stephen King. Uh, he did that one, I think, like 92. But then he did a number of movies after that where they weren't outright terrible, but you could see that the kind of magic was being lost and it just wasn't connecting as well. He might have been getting bored with stuff. He might have been feeling like he's been kind of shoehorned into, well, you just make these kind of movies. And like the fact that he lost out on making some bigger things. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure. I don't know if he just ran out of steam or if he got kind of fed up with how everything was going. But yeah, there's like somewhere in the early 90s, there's a trajectory where it starts to go down. And then at a certain point, I would argue he never really recovered for theatrical releases. His movies have been phenomenal or his music has been phenomenal. And then he did those couple masters of horror episodes that actually, I, when they came out, I was like, Oh, that that's John Carpenter. That's, that's what we've been missing. But his, uh, his theatrical ones were kind of getting like, each one was kind of getting worse than the last, which, you know, sucks. So yeah, I, I, I that's how I would address his career in total. I, I'm curious what you might have to say, you know, you're, you're coming to it a little differently. You've, watched a number of his movies but like do you is he a director you appreciate or well absolutely and more so after watching this uh to circle back to the point i made earlier the documentary was the pervert's guide to cinema by okay. slazov Sla, uh s excuse me slava zizek <laughs> and he's a great he's it's very interesting and they live is kind of centrally um examined within that documentary because of the glasses yeah. used for ideology, which you can certainly see in a lot of his films. Um, and I thought there were elements of Assault on Precinct 13 that really were ahead of its time. Uh, now, this can go both ways because I have a critique of that as well, but I wouldn't want to start with that because I thought there was a lot of great stuff there. But um, I thought that there were a lot, there was a lot in this film and I think um, in Assault on Precinct 13, it almost had in some aspects, and I could see how it could go the wrong way for him later on in his career, because he has a sensibility, Linton, that to me was almost, I would call it European or fiercely independent, in which though he sets the table extremely well, and the movie is structural in that the first half, the first, and it's almost exact, the first half, um, it, at that midpoint, it switches from total setup to attack for the entire second half. It's almost yeah. to the minute. So that's Hollywood. But there were a number of things. Now, I don't know if it's by necessity, because as you said, he didn't have much money. But there were a number of things that, like the cinematography, for example, the shots from the vehicles 
during the first half were fascinating and I think very much ahead of their time. They were very minimal and long, but just beautiful. And they looked like something out of a Blade Runner, like Blade Runner 2049. They looked futuristic to me, even though they'd been shot years ago. So the cinematography, I thought the music kind of had a futuristic uh, techno vibe. And I found it to be genreless in that it could have been a horror movie. If you hadn't told me anything, and if I didn't know anything going into it, it has the same feel in that rich, long setup of a horror film. You know, it could, I mean, the payoff is different, but in a lot of ways, it's the same. So there's a lot about him, though he is, I would say, a Hollywood filmmaker, as you said. He also has some strong independent sensibilities that I noticed and really appreciated in his stuff. And I could see how someone like that, because narratively, though he sets everything up very well, narratively, it's hard to tell. It's a little bit muddled is a negative word, but it's a little bit um, stringy. It's a little bit strange. You're not mm-hmm. quite sure who the protagonist is. It's uh, There are some interesting things he does, which to me is, again, more independent and potentially European. So um, I said that to say I could see how a box office failure like The Thing could really drive him in a different direction because he seems like the kind of guy, of course, I've never even seen an interview with John Carpenter. I've never heard him talk, so this is all just conjecture on my part. But he seems like a kind of guy who the three-act structure and the whole film um, framework almost seems arbitrary to him. Like, he could just do anything, like make a Kinks tribute album, and he just it'd be all the same to him. I don't know. So um, an interesting man and an interesting trajectory. And it's also, and this I'll pass it to you, but it's also interesting to look at it 40 years later because all the drama of the moment that must have happened to him when he's on the rise, things are going well, and then a movie like The Thing doesn't play well at the box office. And he knows that he's made these potentially classic films. He must know. And then one movie doesn't play well, and all of a sudden he goes on a different trajectory. It's got to be frustrating. And, you know, that frustration would, of course, inform that different work. It could almost drive you more deeply into independent sensibilities. I don't know. Um, So anyway. I know at a certain point he was kind of taking some gigs just because they were being offered. Like I think that by the time you hit the nineties, because he had done a number of passion projects, like the thing was a passion project and we can, uh, I have something to say on that later, but um, Halloween obviously was, he was writing a number of them or co-writing them with people. But yeah, eventually later he was, he did a remake of village of the damned. I don't think he was like particularly psyched about that. It was just, they needed a horror director and John Carpenter does horror. So I think like, cause if you watch that one, it, it's been years since I saw it, but I remember just being kind of lifeless. Uh, he did a movie called memoirs of the invisible man, with Chevy chase. It's like kind of a horror light comedy or I don't know. Uh, it's not very good. And I think he's outright said that, you know, he only did that because like he needed some kind of gig. So I, I think at some point he got semi placed in movie jail 
um, which like I said is unfortunate. I do want to touch on something you said there about it being almost like a horror film. And what's mm -hmm. interesting is some people genuinely do consider it to be a horror film um, or, you know, on, on the fringes, it's usually, you know, described as like a thriller or like, a, you know, a thriller with melodrama. I saw that Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg are big fans and they were talking about how it sort of plays in similar ways to action films, but it predates what we know of to be an action film. Like it's, you know, this right. is 1976. So, you know, Die Hard and Lethal Weapon and, you know, and big Arnold Schwarzenegger things, those didn't happen yet. So pre-76, you have maybe a movie like Bullet was, you know, could be an action film, but really you would probably think it's more of like a thriller in a modern context. So, but they were arguing that, um, that it, you know, kind of almost like that it's a proto action film, that it does a lot of the same kind of beats that you would mm -hmm. see later in action films, but that that hadn't really been established in kind of cinema language yet. So he may well have revolutionized some stuff there. Um, so you have the action aspect, you have the horror aspect. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing to add to that, he, you're not just picking it up and saying, oh, this oddly feels like a horror movie. There's some intentional leaning into that. Sure. It's partially inspired by Night of the Living Dead. And in Night of the Living Dead, you have a black protagonist. Uh, I can't remember the character's name, but all the characters end up in the farmhouse. And it was one of the first movies to feature a major black protagonist in a heroic role. And mm -hmm. he's trying to fend off the living dead who are coming to the house. And he's like kind of the only one who's capable more or less in that, in that uh, space. We also have a black protagonist here. Who's a cop who is taking over uh, a police station for one night that is being shut down in a couple days. They're transferring everything, but it's kind of like, and then this weird in between he's been assigned to sort of babysit it for the night. And so of course mm -hmm. everything goes wrong. So there we have this black protagonist who's somewhat molded off of the character of Night of Living Dead and the situation that Night of Living Dead was in. Um, I also saw that this was one of the rare 70s movies to have a black protagonist that was not a black exploit specific black exploitation movie. So mm -hmm. this was, you know, allowing a black actor to do something that was different and just, you know, well, we're going to, we're going to make this kind of thing that's very localized and have a limited audience. So we have that, we have, we have the horror aspect and the, the, mm -hmm. uh, gang itself. I, I hadn't watched this movie in years. And so I was rereading some stuff and I don't know that I would have picked up on this consciously without reading it, but the gang was, or the gang intentionally by Carpenter was being presented as though they were like zombies, like ghouls. So he gave them almost no dialogue. They're relentless in their pursuit and they just kind of stalk from outside. They'll suddenly appear and suddenly disappear. So they're essentially presented as horror movie villains, that there's this type of supernatural element to them, even though they are, as far as the movie goes, they are people, they are human Carpenter's kind of playing with the language of film in that they're presented as a near supernatural threat. So you have this horror element, and then you have the element that is also going on that I'm sure you'll have some things to talk about is it's effectively a Western. 
So you said it was genreless, and you have some action beats. You've got this horror element, but it's also definitely presented as a western. It was partially based on uh, Howard Hawks. Uh, I believe it's a Rio Bravo, but he's also taking some inspiration from like Rio Lobo and some other fifties, uh, sixties mm-hmm. you know, westerns. And so, as I understand it, Carpenter really wanted to do a western, but 1976 is two years after Blazing Saddles, and Blazing Saddles is often seen as being the movie and the reason that the Western was killed. The Western had been, they'd been making Westerns since the dawn of cinema. It had been kind of waning by the late 60s, and then Blazing Saddles comes out and is phenomenal and mocks all of the tropes of the genre, and so it made it difficult for Westerns to get made because audiences were both kind of sick of them and they had been made fun of so well in Blazing Saddles. So it wasn't until you hit the early 90s that Westerns were really viable. To I mean, they've never been viable to the degree they used to be, but they weren't even close to being viable until like the early 90s again. You'd only get a few. But yeah, so he's largely basing this uh, off of Westerns, one in particular, and it's a movie where these characters are in the police station, multiple characters. They're trying to ward off this uh, incoming gang. And uh, it plays like a siege. So if you transpose this to the Old West, the gang would have presumably been like cattle rustlers or they would have been Indians or whatever group would have been the external threat. And then the people inside would have been the homesteaders or where they would have been, you know, just uh, the noble farmers trying to make their way in the Old West or whatever the case may be. But yeah, Carpenter essentially wanted to make this, uh, wanted to make a Western, wasn't able to, wasn't going to get the funding. And so the idea came about of, well, if you change, if you took the basic beats of a Western and you put it in a modern context, you can do something interesting and different and still get the money. Well, and it's interesting, you know, because in that kind of hybrid mold, and I like that you said Edgar Wright, because I don't think, I mean, Edgar Wright owes his whole career to John Carpenter. If we're, I mean, he falls completely under the umbrella mm. of that hybrid genre. And it's interesting that you said that Carpenter was a comic book fan, because one thing that I noticed was this kind of larger than life character introduction. It's almost campy, but not in a bad way. It's so overstated. I mean, Napoleon is the antihero, you know, and even Bishop, even Bishop, they're, they're just such strong character names, Ethan Bishop and Napoleon Wilson. And the way they're introduced, you got a cigarette, you know, for Napoleon. And, um, and then I want to circle back to this because I think there's an element here for Bishop. And to me, it's a commentary on racism because. Oh, I think that's, I think there's something in there. Uh, I'm curious what you picked up on it because I was taking a couple things from it. Well, he's, he's under siege to use your word from all sides. There's now there's this ominous potential conspiracy that's laid out in the first half, right? With the, uh, the news traveling that he's taken over, someone downtown potentially setting him up, mm-hmm. race being an issue, the captain not really introducing himself. And then once the battle starts, 
the bomb or whatever that they eventually use, he and Napoleon use being um, being kind of placed in the station house. So there, there's this, on the one side, you have the police department potentially not supporting him at all and maybe actively working against him. And then on the other side, he's battling these ghouls, as you said. And it's interesting that they're multiracial because it kind of shows how racism has a number of faces. If we want to use Bishop as kind of a, uh, as a protagonist, as a stand-in for that, um, the racism of America in 1976, you know, he's facing it from all directions. And yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, on that, I think Carpenter was kind of forward thinking. He said that he, you know, made a gang with people, you know, that it's a, it's a gang that wouldn't have really existed at that time. But yeah, it's, you, you see people of different races that are in this gang so it wasn't down racial lines, but I think he recognized, oh, if I make all of these black guys or make them all Hispanic or you know Latino or whatever, then this isn't going to play. It's it's going to be like you know one race pitted against another, and I don't think he wanted that. I mean, I, I as I understand it, he's a fairly you know forward thinking liberal guy, so I think, but but that's still to his credit for the time. A lot of directors wouldn't have done that. They would have just made the gang a Latino street gang, you know? Um, sure. So I, so I think that's an element uh, on, on the Bishop, who is the cop that comes to kind of babysit the precinct. I did notice, yeah, you said the chief of police or the, the captain for the precinct doesn't, doesn't come to see him and is kind of hostile when he does see him. He says something about like, Oh yeah, somebody's, you know, giving you a real present here uh, mm -hmm. downtown. The guy who's under the captain you know, some kind of sergeant or something that's like an underling. He seems like openly hostile to Bishop, like just has just this scowl on his face the moment he gets there when really all Bishop is doing is like, oh, I'm just assigned to be here for the night. And right. there's no reason, like he's not taking anything over. He's not taking anybody's job. He's just literally like, I'm going to be here tonight and then you won't see me again. And like this guy just has this like hostile look. So the movie's never explicit. Uh, oh, and in early in the movie, when Bishop's talking to someone via his radio, you know, his captain or whatever says something mm -hmm. about like doing what he's told that there are, you know, there are no more, uh, no more heroes, just men who do what they're told. And like, right. it's not presented as like him putting him in his place necessarily. He's not like dressing him down, but it's still obviously a negative reaction. So yeah, I, I think there's this undercurrent that's happening and that ties in with, I think, how he and Napoleon operate in the movie. Uh, I don't know if you had anything else before I would move on, but on the racism yeah. aspect at all. Yeah. Um, and, well, first about the, his captain, because I think that's very telling that the captain says there are no heroes. Because initially I thought he was talking, in the moment I thought he was talking about Bishop. But then thinking about it later on, if, in fact, Bishop is being set up, the captain could be saying, I like you personally, but I can't stop this. It's just this is the, the system. Systemic racism is bigger than us. And I can't stop this. I'm just a cog in the wheel. So I'm sending you out here. He could be apologizing for his lack of action in helping his friend by saying, no, there's no hero. I can't be a hero in this situation. I'm just following someone's order above me. And that's why I'm sending you to this station. Yeah. And secondarily, you're not, you're not, you're not saying that they've, 
you think they set him up like this was intentional, just that they were like, get, I, I view it as just, they were giving him a really shitty assignment and then everything goes wrong. Okay. I, so there's at least that, but I'm saying when the second captain knew he was coming, um, I felt that, and Bishop said news travels fast. And then the bomb was set up in there. I felt like there was hinted though. It was never explicit. There was, a hint of conspiracy and okay. I'm talking about this as a white male. So I don't know what racism feels like, but uh, I think it's at least hinted at in a way that a black Lieutenant in 1976 would have struggled with, you know? So whether or not it's explicit may not even matter in terms of the narrative. What matters is he's getting messed with on all sides. Oh yeah. I, I, I guess I was just struggling with the idea of like the way the movie presents why the gang comes there. It's a little, that's one of the issues I have with it. One of the few, but the mechanizations of getting the gang to attack the police station. Sure. Seemingly have, there's no impetus that cops could be aware of. I mean, there's uh-huh. the ga- the gang has been previously attacked prior to this, but it's not been like an ongoing gang war between the cops and the, this particular gang. So I, I didn't view it as the cops are sending him into a war zone. Mm. I, I viewed it as, you know, Oh yeah, we're sending you on this junk assignment and, you know, deal with it. And like, yeah, if you were white, would they be sending him on this junk assignment? Probably not like maybe, but like there's a good chance you can definitely read the movie that he's being sent and his race has a component of is a, is a major component of why he's being shifted off to this. So I definitely was seeing that, but yeah, the way he and Napoleon operate, I think is interesting because essentially you have two, uh, you have dual protagonists. Bishop might get a little bit more screen time, but uh, we follow Napoleon. If you haven't seen the film, essentially we, we follow a number of inmates concurrent with Bishop going into the precinct and they are traveling from a completely different jail and they're going to be taken uh, across the state. And then one of them gets sick. And so the cops on the bus have to stop at the first precinct they can. And so they go there, all the inmates are taken out and put into the holding cells at the movies called precinct 13, but it's actually precinct nine in the movie. It's a, uh, yeah, Precinct 9, Division 13 at some point. So there's a little misnomer. Mm. But they're uh, put in the holding cells. So basically you have these outsiders coming in. They aren't the threat. Um, but they're being brought in. And then eventually as the gang starts to attack, uh, we'll talk a little more about that in a bit. Once the gang attacks, the the surviving police officers and the surviving prisoners, because some of them are killed, have to essentially team up. And so the prisoners are given weapons and they have to fend off because the gang is going to come in. And if they come in, they're likely going to kill everyone in there. And everyone in there knows that. So the cops in there are going to, as odd as it is, give weapons to these prisoners. And the prisoners are presented, I wouldn't argue heroically, but they're presented with sort of a code of honor. Uh, similar to a Western, you know, if this were a Western, these would be like the rough riders who are out on the range who, you know, get into scrapes 
Um, you know, they might be violent men, but you know, they, we we can trust them on this. Whereas the outsiders, the the gang members, they're the you know the undead, the ghouls, um, that external threat. But the the way the thing I had never noticed before when before rewatching it is the way that Bishop and Napoleon are presented. We have those lines that give us an indication of racism that Bishop faces. Mm -hmm. And he's struggling, you know, he's, he's underneath this systemic racist system as uh, MJ said. And then we have Napoleon, the way we're introduced to this guy. And he is, we are told that he's a killer, that he's killed at least one person. When we're initially introduced to him, we have his warden like clubs him over the head and the other cop just acts like it didn't happen. Like they just move on. And there's a couple other moments like that early on with their interactions where you see the police. I mean, essentially what we've all been looking at and talking about for the last several months, at least, if not for the last decade or more um, with police brutality, you see it unfold where these police are in a position of power. Yes, he's a criminal, but they're just abusing their authority and just literally like assaulting this prisoner. And you also open the movie with members of this gang and they are walking through kind of like a corridor, uh, sort of like an alleyway and cops which are depicted like in the shadows you don't see the faces or anything you just sort of see hands and guns like shotguns extended and they just blow away these gang members in a corridor Mm -hmm. and the implication is yeah okay the gang members are likely bad people but the cops in that opening sequence are presented as shadowy villains they are presented creepy and scary and they gun them down And then when the news report comes on, it says that the gang members died in a firefight. Well, it wasn't a firefight. The Mm -hmm. cops literally just gunned them, shot them in the back. Now, so so then you get a little bit, very little, but a little bit of media manipulation of like how the cops are presenting this to the world. So in the first half hour, you're presented with what Bishop is struggling with. You're presented with how criminals or people who are suspected to be criminals are being treated by the police. So what it creates, I think is an interesting aspect where you're on Bishop's side, the cop, because he's presented as like a straightforward, like kind of like a good person. As we get to know him, we definitely get more of that, but he's struggling with the way the system is treating him. Then you see Napoleon And while we know that he's a killer, we know that he's a criminal, we're seeing how the system is treating any of anyone who gets wrapped up in the system. So the cops as in general are not being presented particularly well. And so you have these two men who are on either side of the law who are trapped in different aspects of it and are being kind of uh, affected by it. They're kind of, you know, being damaged by it in different ways. So I think that's what Carpenter does. That's really interesting is that's how he lets you, he kind of, he gives you the allowance of being on the convict side because other than Bishop, most of the cops are presented as 
at least minorly or majorly villainous. And so mm-hmm. that pays off then later once Napoleon gets a gun in his hand and, you know, he starts defending people. At that point, we're we're okay with it because we know that even if he's a bad man, as far as like moral codes go, he's not, he, he, he isn't breaking moral codes. He's, you know, within the bounds of the Western. So that's, that's an aspect that I didn't pick up on, you know, when I watched it 10, 15 years ago, whatever, but it really stuck out this time. Sure. And, you know, I see what you're saying there I, completely. I would, and I think that is what he was going for, is that dual protagonist, and you have a black officer who's struggling with identity, and then there's a white killer. But this is one thing I found problematic, is um, Napoleon kind of becomes, in the second half of the second act, kind of a white, he's a white savior. You know, he, he plays that white savior role, because the narrative agency, he's kind of making these choices. He's leading the charge at points, and Bishop's looking to him. And that did bother me to some extent because uh, it just didn't seem as true as Bishop's identity struggles. Mm-hmm. You know, Napoleon, it's, it all seemed filmic. It all seemed theatrical with Napoleon. The whole thing with the officer, like you said, though that's definitely true. And I liked that bit of media manipulation. I will say that Bishop seemed to me someone who existed in 1976, whereas Napoleon didn't exactly. Now, it's a film, but there's a theatricality that I think plays into, like I said, that white savior that always needs to come in. There always needs to be a white male saving the day and Napoleon's leading the charge. And I, that pissed me off a little bit, though I don't know if I had the right to be frustrated. And I'll say there's one thing that kind of I thought about this, and I don't know if I'm right about this. I'm just running my mouth. But where I really saw this is Lee. And Lee is a very interesting character in terms of agency. At the beginning, and one of the only initial moments we have, especially in the this first is half. The, uh, this is the main like secretary. Uh, yes. There's two female secretaries, and but one has much more prominence than the other. Right. So Lee and Bishop have that beautiful moment over coffee. And it's the it's a it's such a relieving and nice moment because they're kind to each other, which really stands out in this film. But then Lee turns out to be a real badass. Now, what was interesting to me and what goes back to this dual protagonist is that Lee seems to really like Bishop until Napoleon shows up and they've got something. And then Lee all of a sudden wants Napoleon. And this goes all the way through to the end when Napoleon says there's two things you never walk yeah, away from. Yeah, yeah. And the second one is definitely, he's, he doesn't say it. It's not explicit, but it's love. He's talking about he, he may love Lee and she's into it too. And she has this whole long gaze with him. So I think that narratively, now, this was made in 1976. I give Carpenter credit, but I will say what did irk me is I think Bishop's agency was taken away, and that showed up in the two, and I think Napoleon got to make a few too many choices in that second half, and Lee just dropped him when they had that beautiful setup for those two to start a romance. As soon as this bad boy, Napoleon, shows up and asks for a smoke, 
she's all up in his business. Well, and Lee, Lee is very good with a gun. Um, I think that there's an element too that it maybe, and I don't know, again, I'm not a woman, but I think that she was given a lot of agency and Carpenter should maybe give him credit, give credit, get some credit for that too, because Lee was pretty impressive. Uh, she was killing some mofos too. She yeah, was doing- she, uh, they said, so this is, like I said, based on some Howard Hawks movies that Carpenter is a huge fan of. Uh, and uh-huh. Earlier, I wanted to bring this up. Uh, this isn't the only time that Carpenter would look to Hawks as inspiration because mm. Howard Hawks made the original thing from another world. Um, mm. And then Carpenter loved that movie. It's on TV in the original Halloween. Like some of the kids are watching it. And then Carpenter obviously went on to remake it with the thing. I would argue he did it much better. But the original thing from another world, like it's interesting. Um, it's worthwhile. So from what I understand, though, the Lee character is based on a lot of Howard Hawks women, the way he would present women in his films as, you know, being kind of like tough as nails and, and you know, able to get in the thick of things as well. So, yeah, I, I think she's a, a solid character. A couple points you brought up. The White Savior thing, I, I wasn't picking up on that. I mean, I feel I feel they're pretty even. Mm. Um, I, I may have missed some stuff near the end of, you know, maybe Napoleon ends up leading the charge more than I was noticing. Mm. I, I felt like Bishop does make a lot of calls throughout. And then he has the moment at the end where they, the cop, they've, 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 kept the gang at bay they've killed them mm-hmm. and uh cops come in the cavalry shows up too late it doesn't matter because everything's already over and they want to slap the cuffs on napoleon and bishop gets angry because he's just like gone through he's been in the trenches with napoleon essentially and so right. he, wa- he wants to go like outside with him and you know kind of like so he gets credit that napoleon gets credit for what he's done now you could argue that yeah, there that possibly that could be viewed as dated because it's a minority character, you know, like singing the praises of uh, you know this white character, uh, even though he's a convicted killer, um, and that could be problematic. I think it speaks to Bishop's character though, because he's a lawman and he's mm-hmm. presented as very noble, and that he views this as kind of being beyond the law it's like yeah you're eventually gonna have to go back to jail we all know that but for this moment you saved all of our lives along you know with us so i i think there's something solid there but yeah there could be some issues uh the the bit you brought up about lee and napoleon is interesting though because yeah when he says what is going on there linton what is there were there were really only two big problems i had with the movie and that was one of them and it was he they like share a smoke they're talking it's near the end and he says there's only like what's only two things you don't turn your back on right and right what's, what's what's the first one he says a friend who can't go with you like somebody okay. who, yeah who can't like who's can't who's helpless right then or something yeah like that. so so again that that plays into his sort of like western identity of like a man with a code i mean this literally is like a seat this language would fit right in with a western And then he doesn't say love. I think you could also possibly read into that just women. Um, You're not even necessarily sex, but like in a 
he could be implying women in terms of like kind of like turning your back on women and children that type of idea but i would say that yeah there's definitely a possibility that like love is what's implied the problem is i felt at no point prior to that moment was anything really established between them where they're like oh this is a thing and they're an item and and also the whole movie takes place in the span of like an hour and a half or not the whole movie but the once the siege starts happening which is when napoleon's in there it's it's a very short window of time and so i always have a problem with any movie where they want where characters barely know each other and then they're like oh i'm in love with you and I just always feel it's super false. I mean, it's one thing if you want to present a character like, well, we, we're clearly attracted to each other, or I'm very interested in you, or this could become something. But yeah, this this is a very extreme example of that, where the characters have hardly known each other at all. They're getting shot at um, for, for the last hour, you know, barely speaking because they're trying to avoid getting shot. Uh, the guy is presented as obviously being capable, but so is she. But for like half the time he was there, he was locked up in a cell. So yeah, it really it's it's basically Carpenter trying to force in uh, a Western moment of like the you know the rough guy with you know the pretty school teacher kind of thing. But it just it does not work. But I thought that okay, and I'm gonna go ahead and completely recant what I said earlier. If I implied that I was frustrated with Lee, I think I said that Lee has a right to like Bishop and then like, and oh God, Linton, she does have a long stare at Napoleon when he comes in. She has a smoldering stare so much so that I thought, is this going to be one of those things where he killed her mom or she's his sister or something? Their stare, her stare at him was meant to be noticed, but so was her conversation with Bishop. Lee provides a lot of interesting humanity and a lot of mystique narratively, mm. and also a badass. Lee's probably my favorite character of the whole movie. She's interesting now that I think about it, or at least she's a multi-level. She's got a lot. There's a lot that she does with her scenes that's interesting, and the questions are kind of unanswerable. But the there's inklings, Linton. There are inklings there. There are a lot of inklings in this movie. Sorry, you go. You go ahead. Oh no, I, yeah, I have no problem with her as a character. It's it's more just how the script is trying to force the square peg into a round hole of that moment. Like, I just sure. don't think, I don't, I don't think a look from across a room is enough to establish that this police secretary is now desperately in love with this convicted, you know, felon. She might find him attractive. <laughs> she might think he's, she might think he's interesting, but yeah, that, that was just an aspect that, I mean, you notice that in movies occasionally where they're trying to force something in that doesn't quite work so yeah so there was that aspect of the script that i thought was fairly iffy and then the other thing was the mechanizations of how they get the father of the girl to attack the gang Mm -hmm. and then the gang chases him and that's what leads him to the police station and that's how everything essentially gets kicked off so what happens early on is the gang has essentially made a pact to go out and wantonly kill after several of their members have been killed by the cops. And the first, one of the first people they come across is an ice cream truck vendor and they kill him. 
and we have a little girl that comes up to the truck and doesn't know what's going on, and she gets shot point blank in the chest in a fairly graphic scene um, that Carpenter later regretted, as I understand. But I actually think the scene works really well because it establishes the stakes. It lets you know this is serious. These guys mean business. It's awful, but I don't think it's just there for no reason. But after that happens, the father gets a gun that the ice cream truck guy had, and he starts chasing them down. But there's some weirdness there where, like, there's, like, this mini car chase. There's four gang members. He sort of corners them where both their cars are there. The main gang member has this silencer gun that he shot the girl with. The father has, like, a snub-nosed pistol. And they both get out of the car. The other three gang members just bolt from the car. It's four on one. I would think those other gang members have guns or at least other weapons. And they probably aren't going to be intimidated by this 40-year-old white dude um, who's probably never held a gun in his life. But they just bolt from the scene. And so it leaves the main gang member and the father to exchange fire. The father does not get hit at all. The main gang member gets hit like several times by the father. And so he's killed. And then the, so the rest of the gang has just wandered away instead of immediately attacking or trying to stop this guy. They're just like off cam, off camera, off screen, no reason given. This guy has a working car in front of him. He drove it there. He has his car. There's nothing, nothing happens to it. In the firefight, I checked. I went back. I was like, oh, maybe there's a reason. The tires are not blown out. Nothing happens. The car is functional. Instead of getting back in his car and driving the fuck out of the country, which is what he should be doing right now after murdering a gang member, he, like, semi-jogs down the road to this lone phone booth, and he's going to presumably make a call to the police then the gang members who decided to just like go have a smoke, walk, we see them walk over to the dead gang member, look down at his body in this very dramatic like, oh, he's dead. I guess that's what happens when we walk away from him. And then they decide to chase down the father who's now on foot because he left his car for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> he left his car and now he's running just aimlessly there after him. Are they after him in the car or are they after him on foot? I think they're I after think, him on foot and they have a I car. They, yeah, I think they go after him. They have him two on foot. car. They have two cars now because he left his car. So they go after him on foot and he just luckily comes across this police station and then he comes in and he's like in shock and can't talk. Nobody there knows what's going on and more gang members just come out of the ether um, which plays to the movie being sort of like a horror vibe. But they show up, and that's when they put a cholo on the precinct, which according to the movie is like sort of a death mark. And so that's when they start attacking. That's how everything gets rolling. I understand what Carpenter's trying to do, where he's trying to get his chess pieces, but the organization of it, the logic of it, there's just so many gaps. And I, I really like the movie as a whole. The other thing with Lee, I can like roll with. There's plenty of movies that have those kind of, this is not a developed relationship type bit. But this was like a thing where this is the central crux of your movie and how you get your characters in the place they need to be. 
and it was it, it could have been so easily solved i mean there's so many ways you could have done it the guy could have gotten back in his car the gang members could have been chasing him his car could have crashed because he's erratic and scared and then he gets out on foot i mean there's there's different ways you could do it or the gang member he when he initially was chasing them down the gang members were in separate cars and that's how he was able to kill one of them but not the the other ones like why they weren't involved so it's just a lot of mechanizations that weren't thought through but i as an audience member it's pushing any kind of believability for me once we get over that hump i'm totally on board with the siege and everything that happens but that was a real like problematic area i felt yeah there's some real narrative and and i kind of enjoy that stuff i'm cool with it to me that goes back to the fiercely independent or even european sensibility where it's like why is this even happening i love it when movies do that but i may be in the minority there so I'm with you in that because there are these two things, right? They, I got the feeling that that gang was going to attack somebody that night, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, they like they like cut their hands and like shared blood in a bowl or something. So it was this, this symbolic thing. Symbolic thing. But then when that guy shot their friend and they chose this specific place, that was kind of the idea. But I'm with you. There's a lot of logic. There's a B movie element to it too, but. I was cool with that. I'm with you. I agree with you completely, but I'm okay with that kind of, uh, I'm willing to suspend a lot of disbelief. I don't even notice plot holes until somebody says them. You know, I just kind of willingly accept. It's funny because I've spent the whole time kind of bitching about, you know, where the narrative agency is and which I mean, is probably ridiculous for some people that I would do that anyway. As a, you know, well, you, there's no video here, but it's a balding, straightish white male you know there's i'm probably not the one but again i don't know if we could talk about that movie without discussing that stuff because it's so deeply on the forefront you know oh, yeah I, I, yeah i think it's it's definitely intentional like it's i right. mean it's, it's 1976 so it's not going to be 2020 sensibilities but uh sure. but yeah I, I think it's it was trying to be progressive in its day it you know might have had some issues but then okay so there's a matching that happens if you remember like what you're saying and how you're saying it and the narrative structure then the structure of the narrative could be battling the patriarchy somehow but i don't know exactly how you know like that guy killing the guy who's killed his daughter and then going into that catatonic state I don't know who he represents. If he's just middle class, he's going to pick up his mom and like trying to convince her to live with them. And then all of a sudden he can't speak. I mean, for the rest of the movie, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I think racism is definitely could be considered a theme in it. Uh, I, I don't know if like patriarchal aspects are part of it. I mean, you do have like three prominent women. You have Lee, you have the second secretary, who gets presented as essentially just wanting this all to go away. And she's sort of hysterical and she wants to give up the, the father who's sought refuge there. She wants to just give him up to the gang because she doesn't want to get killed. I mean, she has basically an understandable position. I mean, the movie presents it as the rest of the characters are like, we're not going to do that. We're not that. I believe what Bishop says, you know, he came here for help and we're going to give him all the help we can. And that's part of his, you know, moral cowboy code 
that he has in it. But I, I think that other secretary character, you, you understand where she's coming from. Like she just went to work that night. She's not, you know, and, and it's not a fully stocked police station tonight. You know, it's, there aren't people there to defend like it normally would be. So she's like, Hey, I want no part of this. And you can also look at that and say, it's, you know, it's reprehensible, but I, I think it's an understandable position. And yeah, then you have the girl that's gunned down. So uh, Lee stands out of the three women as being, you know, very capable. And when the second secretary is proposing that Lee does not join in and say, yeah, that's what we've got to do. I'm totally with her or that's sensible. She's no. basically with everybody else of like, no, we're, we're staying here and we're taking care of this. Right. And that I thought was kind of the height of her and Bishop's relationship because Bishop says something like, yeah, we're going to fight. We're going to keep everybody alive. He came for our help. And Lee says, I think that's very nice. <laughs> and Julie is the other uh, lady's name. And okay. Julie, yeah, Julie gets killed pretty early on. And yeah, she doesn't have a lot of agency, but Lee does. She fights with it. Those three characters really battle. I mean, they battle their asses off, don't they? Yeah. Lee, Bishop, and Napoleon. They fight quite a few people. How many people do you think the three of them killed? Oh, I saw something. I can't remember what it was, but there was a there was a body count that was estimated that was if if all the people we see on screen get shot, actually died shot or you know killed in some other way if everyone we see actually died i think it was like it, it was in the tens it was like 40 something or 50 something i i don't remember the actual number but yeah it was up there so uh yeah the the movie plays to that you know that that kind of horror vibe of you know it's not being marketed as a horror movie you called it genreless early on so it's it's pulling from different sources but yeah, horror is definitely one of the aspects. So I think it wants to have a solid body count. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, I'd say at this point, like just any kind of like stray thoughts, I've got at least one thing here I want to throw out, which was when we're talking about the siege, you had talked about the, the way Carpenter shot cars really striking you. There was this minimalism and some of that's obviously by necessity of well, how much money he had and everything. Another part I thought, which was incredibly effective, also born out of necessity, I'm sure, is when the siege takes place, when it initially happens, and the cops, uh, the cops and everyone else who who are in there, they don't really know what's happening yet. Uh, one cop has been shot and killed who went outside. He didn't know what was happening. He was shot by a sniper. Some more shots are fired at Bishop. He escapes. They right. have an idea that something's going down, but they don't know how bad it is yet. And then the gang unloads on the precinct in total. Like it's just, there's just dozens and dozens of gunshots and the sequence plays out for probably a solid two minutes. Mm -hmm. And what happens is all the characters are like ducking down, getting underneath tables and that kind of stuff. But Carpenter, other than the characters ducking down, the Carpenter focuses the camera on a bunch of windows in different areas of the precinct and then certain interior spaces. And you just see stuff start breaking and exploding from the unseen bullets. So you just see windows just getting just pockmarked and eventually glass starts shattering. And it just happens again and again and again. And then you see like 
papers on a desk just explode from some kind of squib thing that they did, you know, uh, some kind of you know, cheap thing that they're able to make it look like um, the bullet actually blew something up. And he just does probably 50, 60 of these in a row. Mm-hmm. And it really makes it's effective in its simplicity. It's very Hitchcockian almost in, you know, we don't need to see bullets ripping through bodies to establish right. this. We're just seeing the effects and we know if they're standing up at any point, they're done for. And so really just like the scene with the girl getting shot, it's there for a reason. It sets the stage. It shows the stakes. I guess the only issue I would have with it is they, all the gang members do it once. And then after that, they just seem to forget that they could do it again, or maybe they're out of bullets. I I, I don't know. It's left kind of vague. Cause after that, a lot of the character, the interior characters are like up and walking around again. But initially there's just this barrage of gunfire and the way Carpenter frames it is incredibly effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And there are a lot of examples. I would have to watch it a second time, but there are a ton of examples in this film of how elegant that minimalism. And I like the, I like that you said Hitchcockian. That kind of minimalism can be that kind of um, the hint, you know, mm-hmm. the hint. The, he does a lot with a little all over this film, and I. I want to say too, in terms of stray thoughts, I think Tony Burton, Wells, Tony Burton played Wells, and he did a great job. And then they just sent him out to die. If I were Tony Burton, if I were Wells, I just would have ran away in that sewer, man, because you know that he's going to get screwed if he gets out. Yeah, he. I mean, he gets out like he he to a degree. Um, but that's there's a moment oh. the way that plays for if you haven't seen the movie is yeah essentially they're trying to escape they're cut off from the the phones have been cut and nobody every, everyone with the police assume that everything is going fine because this is like last night at this police precinct so they're just ignoring it um, but the phones have been cut they have no contact with the outside world so one of the convicts is sent out because he can hotwire a car to try to get to help. And it's implied that he'll probably like, you know, flee the country shortly after getting to a payphone or something. But yeah, he makes it to the car. He survives. He hot wires it. He goes. And this is a moment where I feel the more movie is playing on horror movie tropes. Then one of them is in the backseat and like weirdly in the backseat, like he pops up and is he stab him or strangle him? What? How does he? Shoots him. Okay. Shoots him. So he comes out rifle Litton, a long <laughs> rifle so it's it's very similar to a scene that ends up in halloween when michael myers kills uh the same actress who's uh what was the the second secretary's name when you say second you mean julie julie so that actress ended up being cast in carpenter's halloween as one of the other babysitters and she gets killed in a car in a very similar kind of sequence where michael myers is in the backseat of a car and pops up and he does strangle that one. So I wasn't, I couldn't remember how Carpenter presented this one, but yeah, it's presented in a very horror movie kind of vibe. And it's also like an odd thing because if you think about, I'm totally fine with it, but it's odd because you think about it where that gang member must've just been sitting in that car for like the last couple hours. Like if they get to this car, I'm going to be ready. And it works really well. But yeah, that's a that's a strong moment for the horror connection. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, and then just a couple other things like about what was going on that year. Uh, so 76 released 77 Academy Awards. Um, Rocky won Best Picture. And, oh, I saw um, there were three horror classics released that year, though. The Omen. Yeah. And I can't remember what else. I had it pulled up, and now I've lost it. I've lost it, Linton. Are you just putting it in a context of, like, this movie in relation to other hits right. of the 70s? or Right. So in the same year, in one year, okay, The Omen, Carrie, Marathon Man, Assault on Precinct 13, Harlan County, USA, which you can almost say is its own kind of horror film. And Solaris must have come out in America that year because Solaris came out in 72, but IMDb has it 76. So there's a, a lot of interesting kind of, and I said genre list, I would say hybridity is better probably. There's a lot of interesting hybridity and a lot of interesting, if we look at what's happening cinematically at that time, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on all at once. And uh, Carpenter is certainly a part of that with this film. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, it's that was the era of, um, you know, a lot of, I think it's, they're called the movie brats. That's when Scorsese and Spielberg and Coppola, a number of other directors were emerging, like people who grew up on movies and were becoming experimental or not. I mean, they were still commercial directors, but they were pushing genres in different directions, doing the kind of movies that they always sort of wanted to see. So Carpenter's not lumped in with those guys particularly, but yeah, he's definitely of the same era. So I could see there be some similar uh, sensibilities going on at the time that starts emerging. Sure. So uh, yeah, to wrap up, uh, any closing thoughts? And would you recommend Assault on Precinct 13? Yeah, I definitely recommend it to see what was going on at the time. And I think just cinematically what was happening then. And I think Carpenter predates a lot of stuff. A lot of that, I think Edgar Wright was an interesting example because a lot of that kind of uh, larger than life action stuff, action comedy kind of stuff was there. That's interesting. And I, I think it's definitely worth watching. I certainly enjoyed it. I only watched it because of this podcast, but I really enjoyed it. So I would definitely recommend it just for that. Well, I'm right there with MJ. This is uh, a really good early film for a director. I mean, you, you come across certain directors' careers and uh, sometimes their early work has the kind of roughness that's interesting. You can see where they're going to go. They might not be their best films, but like the, the early elements are there. Uh, one that comes to mind, Christopher Nolan's first movie was Following, and that has a lot of elements that he would later kind of double down on and arguably do better in bigger films but you start to see those kind of qualities and you see how a director can develop where things could go in a strong and positive direction. So this is after Dark Star, which I was never a big fan of, but it's admittedly been years since I saw it. But this is probably the first thing that Carpenter did where you really see, okay, this is where John Carpenter could go because you definitely can see a connection with this and there's ties to Halloween and the way things are presented. Escape from New York, there's similarities. There's uh, aspects with They Live you could draw back to this. So it, even the thing where you have an external threat and a small group of characters that are bound together to keep that external threat at bay. So, yeah, there's a lot of echoes in Carpenter's later offerings that you can see 
the early beginnings of that in Assault on Precinct 13. So it's definitely worth your while. It's not perfect. There's some roughness, but that's what you have to expect from a very early entry in someone's filmography. But it holds up. It's now considered, you know, kind of a a classic of its type uh, for like a a low-budget action film. It's very well regarded. was very well regarded in Europe and particularly England. And they loved that it was sort of played like a modern Western. But its original reception in the United States was relatively cold, um, but it has been reassessed as the years have gone on. Can I say one more thing yeah, about it? Yeah, you sure can. Is it totally cool? Uh, yeah, and I I think it's, I'm glad that it's been reassessed. I'll say, because I, I was looking at these, the top 30 films of 1976 and just thinking about it, only one of these top 30 IMDb films in 1976 was directed by a woman. Okay. Do you know which one it was? Uh, 1976, directed by a woman. I mean, there aren't very many female directors now, let alone 1976. So off the top of my head, I can't. Okay. And it's a documentary and it's a classic. Harlan County, USA. Okay. (laughs) Barbara Coppola. It's a brilliant film about the coal miners uh, battling, which actually has a lot of interesting similarities to this film. Um, there are some interesting connections, though that'd be a d- discussion for another time. But I was just looking at this, you know, because obviously this film got us thinking about representation. It was the only film directed by, it was the only film that I found in IMDb's top 30 that year that was directed by a woman. I could be missing. I just I just glanced through this. And then there are some interesting Clint Eastwoods. The Outlaw Josie Wales was that year. Hitchcock's last film as a director, I believe, Family Plot. In fact, I'm pretty sure that was his last film was that year. So a lot of interesting things happening. This was, what do they call that, the golden period? What's it called, Linton, of Hollywood, the, this portion of the 70s? Hollywood Renaissance, I think. Sure, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely true in looking at this year. Uh, so... I'm glad that Carpenter is, though he may not have been at that time, now definitely considered a part of that. And he certainly deserves to be. Yeah. And, and going back to what we were talking about early on that, yeah, he, his career in general, I mean, the, the latter part of his career, like I said, has been kind of unfortunate, but uh, large portions of his filmography have been reassessed. Many of them considered utter classics. And it is on a positive note for him, his music career has been phenomenal him branching into that uh, has worked really well for him and uh that that's something i didn't mean to mention early on that i lost track of that not only is the score really good as we discussed you know it's up there with some of his some of his solid work in in other films that he only wrote it he wrote it in only three days so he, wow. he cranked it out and he said that he was working because like he it's all synthesizer stuff and the technology at the time was really low level. So he would have to like record like one sound and it would take forever. And he was doing this piecemeal. And like later when he was like working on other films and I, I don't know if Halloween, what, what point he would have crossed into better technology and things, it became much easier for him. But yeah, he did comment that it was just a real struggle. But yeah, only three days and uh, it's a very solid score. And I think you would enjoy it if you are a fan of John Carpenter's scores. So that Mm -hmm. is uh, Assault on Precinct 13. We will be back next time with the 1990s college film PCU.
So, <laughs> so join us for that. I will have a, a new roundtable of guests, and we will be looking at PCU. See you then.